Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. It's Greg from the Hunter Valley. I have a question. What is so important about this election? I'm Sarah Wilson, and you're listening to This Wild Election, a mini-series that will help Everyone who gives a shit about the stuff that defines our nation to make their vote count. So last episode, we painted a picture of where the political landscape is at, still a full month out from one of the most important elections in our history. Overwhelmingly, the sense I get is that the country is both frustrated and fatigued, or the two Fs as Zara from the Daily Oz referred to it, by the fact that we are presented with two main parties running scare campaigns and who are caught up in personality contests rather than putting forward diverse policies and ideas we can get excited by. I think that sums things up from the previous episode and from what I'm hearing all around me. The issues that really matter to us are not being discussed and seem stuck in a go-nowhere quagmire. But in today's episode, my aim is to move on to more positive, hopeful terrain. And really, I've got to say, this is why I'm actually doing this series. So this is probably the most important episode that you can listen to, because I've been frustrated by this go-nowhere quagmire in politics for years, and you might have been too. The lack of thoughtful, kind discussion about the complex issues drives me mental, but I've got sick of despairing and whinging. So a while back, I set out looking for a hopeful path through it all. It took a while like about two years, but I reckon I found one. It's a bit unusual, but it's also definitely sensible and hopeful. So today I'm going to explain it to you. So in July last year, the policy think tank, the Grattan Institute, released a report called Gridlock that confirmed that the big, important, nation-defining policies were, well, just not happening. In fact, it found we were a nation whose governance was going backwards. It confirmed what I and many of you listening, I'm sure, have been feeling. But the report's author, John Daly, who was the CEO at the time, went on to conclude, and I quote, the most politically realistic path to change was for us to vote in a bunch of independent candidates. Many of you might have heard me talk and write about this idea or this phenomenon for a while, but here finally was a legitimate report to back it all up. So these independents, well, they're candidates who don't belong to a party of any sort. And as it says on the label, they are independent in their thinking. 
They're not held back by party politicking or vested interests or money from lobbyists or the fossil fuel industry. So I think Zali Stegall, many of you would have heard of her in the House of Reps, and Jackie Lambie in the Senate. These independents are often quite vocal and we hear a lot about them because they speak out on these difficult issues that the major parties are too scared to address. But here's the thing, we've always had independents and currently there are four in the House of Reps, but this election they have a never seen before momentum behind them that could really shake things up, which is why I'm devoting this episode to explaining how it all works. So I'm guessing you've heard about the crew of 30 or so teal independents, and the teal refers to the colour of their banners and the T-shirts they tend to wear. They emerged from grassroots campaigns all across the country, but in mostly liberal and national seats from, yes, a frustration with this policy gridlock over the past nine years that the LNP has been in power. And they've emerged really vocal around a bunch of core issues, most predominantly the lack of climate policy in this country, but also the need for a federal anti-corruption commission, but also the need for a First Nations voice to parliament, and in some electorates, class or inequality issues, which, as you know from listening to maybe the, the first two episodes of this podcast, these are the issues I've been fuming about and that I believe go to the heart of what this nation cares about. And I call them the five pillars of care. Bar two youngish men in their, I think, 30s running in the Senate, David Pocock and Alex Dyson, these independents are all women. They also all come from big careers. They're doctors and lawyers, environmental scientists. One runs the neurology department at one of the major hospitals in, in Melbourne. They're all in their 40s and early 50s. They're all very fired up, measured, well-spoken and experienced. Now, if enough of them get in this election, they'll be in a position to actually and finally introduce these gridlocked policies back onto the agenda. As it stands, only three of these independents is required to join the current four to hold the balance of power on the crossbench in the case of a hung parliament. Now, I'll just pause here to explain all of this funness. So the crossbenchers is like basically all the MPs in the House of Reps who are not members of major parties. So they're not members of the Labor Party and they're not members of the LNP. So they're mostly independents and Greens and belong to sort of minor parties. A hung parliament is when neither major party wins an outright majority in the House of Reps. So neither wins 76 of the 151 seats. And so for a party to govern, they must get the support of MPs from this crossbench. It happens really rarely in Australian history, though the last time was in 2010 when Julia Gillard had to form government with a member of the Greens, um, Adam Band, and three independents. As I say, this election, there only needs to be an additional three to almost certainly hold what is called this balance of power. I know this all raises a bunch of questions for some of you. Isn't a vote for an independent a waste of a vote? If they're not part of a party, how do they get things done in any kind of meaningful way? So to answer these and many more questions, my guest today is the CEO, the new CEO of the Grattan Institute, Danielle Wood. Okay, so Danielle, can you just tell us first of all, what is the Grattan Institute? What do you do? Thank you, Sarah. We are an independent public policy think tank. So we spend our time researching and thinking about public policy and the things that we think would be in the national interest. So we're, we're not aligned with any political party. We come into policy discussions through that national interest lens. 
And we really focus on domestic public policy. So we, we have people looking at health policy, education, transport and cities, energy and climate, economic policy, how to reform government. And we don't just research, we actually go out and advocate for change. So as well as doing all that kind of work behind the scenes, we're out there trying to make the case to make Australia better in the media. Uh, we talk to people, uh, politicians and advisors, bureaucrats, anyone that we can try and get on board to, to do the things that we think would be good ideas. Awesome. Now, look, in July last year, you put out a report called Gridlocked, and it really outlined the situation that many of us are feeling intuitively when we look at the political landscape. Why did you write this report? It was the final report of Grattan's former CEO, and he'd been Grattan's CEO since its inception 12 years ago. And I think it probably actually came from a sense of frustration, to be honest, uh, when, you, when you've spent 12 years putting out what you think are some pretty good policy ideas and, and seeing them often kind of languish or not go anywhere. I, I think the report was actually a sense of trying to understand that phenomenon. So, you know, where John got to in that report was, you know, a conclusion that things certainly have slowed down in terms of appetite for doing this sort of harder policy reforms over the past 20 years. You certainly have a really different picture if you go back to the Hawke-Keating, early Howard years, and then things really start to, to slow down. We've also seen a, a new phenomenon in that time as well, which is reforms being introduced and then being wound back. So carbon price is a prime example, but we've seen things around um, health funding that fall into that bucket as well. So you kind of have to ask yourself, why would you in government you know, do something that's politically hard if you think that the other side is just going to wind it back in, in three years' time? Um, so the report was about you know, trying to establish whether there was a problem, and we concluded there was, as well as trying to understand you know, what was sitting behind the gridlock and, and why we have got to the point we have. And what are those reasons? Why have the two parties, the two major parties, Labor and Liberal or the coalition, the LNP, why are they both at gridlock on really major issues? Look, there's a number of factors that it, that it came down to. One is just the changed media environment and, you know, the 24-7 media, media cycle is real and it actually makes it harder, I think, to spend the time building up the momentum for policy reform. And something that we found in that report actually is that of all the things that we have put out there in the past 13 years that have got taken up, they only seem to get taken up where they're popular. So it's that difficulty in doing things which are unpopular at first and tilling the ground to actually get the electorate on board and bringing them along with you. The second thing is really that uh, political parties themselves have become a bit hollowed out. So they used to have very broad membership bases. They've become much smaller and narrower over time. Uh, and that's tended to reward people that come from within the party system. Uh, so, you know, if you look at the new intake of politicians in any given parliament, they're now much more likely to have come from a kind of political background, either worked as an advisor or a union leader, much less likely to have been a scientist or a doctor or a train driver. And, you know, those sort of people may have a, a narrower view of success, which is about kind of winning the political game as opposed to coming to parliament with a vision for changing something. The third reason I think is around the, the role of vested interests in politics, and I've done a lot of work on this, we have a system that just makes it a lot easier for people with money, for people with connections 
to get in front of the key people and put their policy arguments. And, you know, it's absolutely human nature when you're only kind of hearing from one side of the argument, you're more likely to kind of fall in line with that. So what we see is a lot of good reforms where there is a particularly well-organised group that's going to lose out, get stymied at that, that, that final hurdle. So there's a number of factors that are playing in Sarah and I think kind of combined they've made this quite potent mix. You've explained that super, super well. So essentially it's people who are not necessarily out in the world making difficult decisions as part of what they do. It's people who are political, you know, more and more people who are political who are in these major parties, who are in it to win. They're getting lobbied by vested interests that push a particular angle. And then when you're dealing with subject matters that are tricky and not always popular, then you just kind of let them slide and kick the can down the road and hope that something else can solve it. And so these issues are just not getting solved. Look, let's talk about the kinds of policies that we're talking about here, the the policies that have got gridlock, because I suspect they're really important ones that go to the heart of our identity as, as a country. Yeah, that's right. Look, and the, the list is, is long, but I mean, I think probably the, the most obvious one to, to people would be climate policy. That's the one that has had a lot of people kind of hitting their head on, on the wall. Tearing their hair out. Um, yeah. And we, it, look, the gridlock has been there for several decades, frankly. You know, it took a long time for governments to even acknowledge that we needed to act. And, you know, the first time we saw a government take a policy to the election was the Howard government back in 2007. Since that time, we have had more than 13 different policies that were either introduced or got very close to being introduced and then put in the bin. And they sort of keep falling over. So we come now to 2022. We had just another um, ICC report the other day just stressing how extraordinarily urgent action is. You know, it's going to be very difficult to keep global warming at 1.5 degrees, yet we still don't have an anything in the way of really substantive national policy to to shift the dial. So that, you know, that one I think is probably the most obvious, Mm -hmm. but there are a number of others. I think, you know, integrity policy is another really important one. So having a federal ICAC or something similar? Federal Integrity Commission, but it actually is much broader than that as well. So that, that grabs the headlines, but, you know, there are a lot of other gaps in our integrity framework. We have really weak political donations and, and lobbying laws compared to most other countries and compared even to, to state governments in Australia. These are things where the fixes is actually well known. They're well understood. These ones are actually popular with, with the public. Vested interest. A major party who's relying on funding from these big lobbyists and fossil fuel industries, for instance, they don't want to be the ones making the call for an ICAC or for, um, for, for tighter policies around political donations. What else? Are there one or two others that you can just let us give us a bit of an insight into that have got really gridlocked? Look, I mean, economic policy is sort of the area that I, <laughs> I work in and there, there's many examples there. I mean, Tax is a really interesting one. You know, we've had experts now saying for decades we have a really kind of outdated tax system. It's not well diversified. We rely really heavily on income tax on people, particularly wage and salary earners. The people that are well advised can find lots of ways for minimising their tax bill, as can can many of the big corporates. We don't have taxes on, on wealth and things like inheritance taxes have become really politically untouchable. Again, we haven't made any progress in 20 years. So the last big change to the tax system was the introduction of the GST in, in, in 2001. So, you know, I, again, 
for various reasons, it just hasn't been able to kind of push forward on, on the things that most people think that we need to do. Again, a difficult issue and governments kick the can down the road. And look, I think gender policies, I also think a First Nations voice to parliament, they're all issues that many listening would go, haven't we heard about this for like years, if not decades? And what you're saying is we'd all be right in feeling that way. So we're not imagining it. That's essentially what you're telling us, Danielle, that things have felt stuck and really they are issues that I think matter to Australians who give a shit about, you know, being a fair country. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the the report in a way was validation for us as well because you get that sense, you talk to people, they have that sense, but, you know, really quite striking when you start to dig down in the, the numbers about what's actually happened in the past 20 years. Yeah, no, I found it. No, I found it very liberating and comforting, cold comfort, to know that what I'd been feeling was actually backed by data. So look, let's move on because the report also comes up with a solution. And that solution is a crossbench of, I suppose, progressive independents who are going to be brave enough to put these policies forward. They have less vested interests because they're not beholden to the party and to particular kinds of funding, and they're willing to debate these tricky subjects. Could you just talk us through how you arrived at that conclusion and talk us through how it could work? Yeah, the the challenge in that report was actually coming out with (laughs) views about how to move the problem forward. And the point around independence was it was really an observation, which was that you know, a lot of the the big reforms, you know, there are reasons why the major parties can't push on them. So climate, which we've talked about, you know, both have kind of sections of their party bases that are very resistant to change. Integrity, sometimes it comes from the party structures themselves. Uh, they really don't like that idea of, of more transparency and accountability. And, you know, independents have actually kind of latched onto this, they, they sort of see those types of changes as the sort of cleaning up of politics or, or keeping the bastards honest, as the Democrats used to say, as an area where they can really differentiate themselves and, and sell the case for change. So really what the report concluded is, you know, if we want to deal with those institutional blockers to reforms, as you say, the vested interests and money in politics, electoral pork barrelling is, is one that's very much in the news of, of late. Also, you know, more boring things like building public service capability, which actually really matters in the the long term. The independents are just more likely to pick those things up and and run with them. So they all come with their own benefits in terms of the integrity of the system. But, you know, better politics in the long run also makes it more likely that we get the good policy as well. So really, that was, was the observation that probably independents will be the force for change in a lot of these areas. Yeah, I mean, from my understanding, most of the independents and, of course, this election, we've got a huge number of them running in really important electorates around the country. They've emerged out of the same frustration that you and I are talking about here. They got fed up. They all have other day jobs. They've got better things to do, but they went, look, somebody's got to address these key issues that matter to us, you know. This sort of setup where the independents could have a real impact Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. At this election, it's sort of premised on the fact that, well, we're likely to have a minority government, whether it's, you know, Labor or the LNP that wins. They're going to have to negotiate with a crossbench. How likely do you think it is that we will be having a minority government of some sort? in the the wash-up of this election? I'm not a political scientist, but I mean, certainly um, if you kind of look at the numbers, it's definitely a possibility. And I think it becomes more of a possibility as we see the the vote for for minor parties and independents rise. So the last two elections, the vote for anyone other than kind of Liberals, Nationals, Labor was at the highest level in in 70 years in both the House of Representatives and the the Senate. So, you know, if that trend continues, and and certainly I think given the number running and given the prominence of some of them, it may well continue. You have to think of, you know, minority government as a real possibility. And at the moment, the numbers are certainly looking that way because neither party has a four in front of them in terms of a two-party preferred polling scenario. And uh, they're both in the 30-somethings and suggests that there won't be an outright government as such. But it remains to be seen. Look, I've got a question from the community, uh, listeners. How do these independents get stuff done if they're not part of a big party? There are really two ways that that independents can try and um, push forward on agenda. Um, First, uh, if you do have a minority government situation and they're negotiating with both sides about who they're going to help form government. So in that situation, an independent would typically be negotiating and saying, you know, I will stand up for you if there's a vote of no confidence. I'll help you pass your budget bills. That's going to determine which side wins. Uh, At that point, they have a lot of power, right? So they can often put forward their wish list and, and get some of those things ticked off right away. So we saw that, for example, in the 2010 election, we, we had a minor, we had a hung parliament. We saw the Greens negotiating for restrictions on political donations. Uh, they created the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is not well known, but this is really important institution that helps opposition and, and other parties cost their policies, which actually certainly is work. Love them. We had, you know, Andrew Wilkie in there negotiating for better controls on poker machines, which is an issue that he's been very passionate about for a long time. And unfortunately, we did see those uh, fall over later, but nonetheless, he was in there pushing that. Um, we had a couple of the regional independents, Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor pushing around um, the NBN rollout in regional areas. Um, so that's a period actually where independence can be really powerful. And it worked really effectively. I think it was a time of quite a lot of policy getting through and these independents had a lot to do with it. Yeah, they played a really constructive role. And, you know, that that's always an open question. Um, you know, it, it can kind of go either way, potentially, 
depending on the the government at hand, depending on the independents themselves. You can imagine it could be uh, very unwieldy and disruptive, but it can also push us towards a kind of different kind of policymaking, one where people have to do a lot more negotiation and consensus building, which can lead to, to, to better policy. I think that's a really good point, Danielle, is that it actually requires, and Julia Gillard, I think many people would argue that she did a very good job of negotiating with these independents, this crossbench. And so there was a lot of very robust and constructive and nuanced discussion around these really important issues that, again, go to the heart of our national identity, to what matters to us. And so I think that's one of the benefits of the independence. You know, I certainly share this when people ask me about it, that it actually encourages more robust interesting and important debate around these issues, it, you know, rather than it just being a foregone conclusion or it, it it reduces itself to the lowest common denominator. Yeah, and it's worth remembering, I mean, we, we look quite different to a lot of other countries in having this kind of two major party system. So in a lot of places, you know, the idea of kind of having to form coalitions and negotiate through is, is the, the norm. So it's a little bit foreign to us, maybe less foreign post the, the 2010 outcome, but it's certainly not unusual by international standards. No, that's right. I think we do forget that. We forget that the particularities of our voting system mean that we're not used to it, but it is actually really healthy for democracy to have discussions about important issues. The other thing, of course, that these independents can do is force important amendments to policies that major parties put up. So a really good recent example is Rebecca Sharkey an independent who introduced a key amendment to the Religious Discrimination Bill. And that actually changed the fate of the bill, but it was a really important amendment. And it took an independent to put up their hand and and fight for that. Neither of the major parties were prepared to do that because of a whole lot of internal politicking. Are there any other sort of ways that independence can be a force for really kind of constructive good in terms of the political process? Look, I think even, you know, after, even if you're not in a minority government situation, you know, there are examples of independence just being able to successfully work with with government to kind of push forward a, a policy agenda. And Fiona Patton in Victoria of the Reason Party, I think is a, a nice example of that sort of negotiator slash independent. She's um, got a lot of you know, a lot of her agenda through the Victorian Parliament. So she sort of led the way on the voluntary assistant dying laws. She was an advocate for the supervised injecting centre, um, decriminalisation of sex work. So I think, uh, you know, where you have a situation where independents can kind of build up a relationship, perhaps with other crossbenchers and perhaps with the government, they, they can still um, help influence the, the policy agenda. And correct me if I'm wrong, Danielle, I also think that independence, and this has sort of played out over the last two to three years, can shift the dial in terms of where the major parties are sitting on these big issues. So I would say that the independents were really vital in terms of getting a net zero by 2050 commitment firmly on the agenda ahead of COP26. And I would say that they had a big part, um, you know, Zali Stegall and so on, in terms of really forcing the government's hand to make sure they did arrive in Glasgow with some sort of commitment, albeit without policies to show how it's going to happen. And I think the same could be said of a federal ICAC, you know, 
Helen Haynes in Indi, she's been pushing that and she's been sticking at it and it's, you know, hasn't gone away and it keeps it, you know, on the front page of the newspapers and it keeps journalists holding, as you say, the bastards to account. So I think that's a really important role in all of this as well. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think there's been a number of them that have been very successful at kind of playing that role and probably probably felt like a bit of a thorn in the the government's side at, at times, but yeah, they, they have their set of issues that they think are really important for the nation. And as you say, they sort of keep keep out there and keep pushing on that. And, you know, that does or that certainly can have an impact on the government's positioning over time. Yeah. And it's simply because they're brave enough to do it. And they're coming from a mandate of representing their electorate. And I'll just throw that in as another bonus of independence is that they're not beholden to a party. They are firmly there to represent their electorate on the issues that matter to the people in their community. And so their commitments don't get, or let's hope, ostensibly they they won't be watered down by, say, for instance, the main priorities of a large political machine. Look, there's another question that's come through. Hi, Sarah. I'm Liana from Queensland. I've always been told a vote for an independent is a waste of a vote, but I know there is a lot of talk this election about independence providing a different way forward. Can you please explain what I need to know? Thanks, Sarah. I mean, we hear this a lot and I think, you know, our parents told us this when we were we were growing up and voting for the first time. But I'm guessing you probably would like me to answer this because it does veer a little into the telling people how to vote territory. Can you answer that one? Is that all right? Absolutely. Okay, I think I've got this right. So this thinking really stems from overseas commentary where preferential voting doesn't exist. That's the style of voting we have in the House of Reps here in Australia. And we've picked up that line here and our parents, I think, used to say it when we first became voters, even though it's actually not relevant here. Here, the system is set up so that every vote actually counts. And it's quite complex to explain. And we'll be going into this and how it works in an episode or two. But I'd also say this election is emerging. And Danielle, I don't know if you agree with me on this, as a bit unique, the role of independence is likely to be more powerful than before as per the, the Grattan Institute report. Given the dissatisfaction with the major parties, a bunch are likely, a bunch of these independents are likely to win outright or via preferences from sort of, you know, Labor Party or whatever. A recent news poll, in fact, just the other week has mentioned, and I mentioned it last episode, that 30% of Australians are saying that we'll, they won't be voting for the two major parties and instead they'll be going for an independent. This also suggests a pretty high likelihood of a hung parliament, I suppose, where neither Labor nor the LNP can hold power in their own right. And just the other thing I'll just throw in here, independents who don't win a seat this election but get at least 4% of first preferences, well, they actually get election funding for the next campaign in three years' time. So if they don't win this time, it actually means they've got a better chance next time because they'll get some funding. Well, I guess in the wake of your report, and that was in July last year, a very, very interesting time for all of this to happen. Since then, there's almost been a blooming of independence. I think there are close to 30 that have put their hand up and are running this election. And, you know, I think around a bit over a dozen are looking hopeful. All of them, at least in the House of Reps, are women. 
like, why has it happened this way? I get asked this all the time. Why are they all women? Have they all got together and went, I'll do it if you do it, but let's make sure no men run. I mean, is there some large conspiracy? Is it a coincidence? What are your thoughts? I actually don't know the answer to that either. And I've also, I've also sort of wondered about that. Look, it may be that, that less, that women are kind of less attracted to, to party politics and they sort of see some of the factional skullduggery and, and just think, uh, you know, that's not really for me. You know, I think it's interesting that they're often united around the kind of issues that they're really talking about. So in a lot of those cases, you know, they, they'll say it's climate action, it's integrity, and to sort of a lesser extent women's economic issues. So, um, you know, I think clearly there's a response that they've thrown their hat in the ring because they feel frustrated that, that issues are missed in the public debate. I do wonder as well if it, it just reflects the ones that have gone before them. And there's a, there's a couple of, you know, real role models out there, I think. So, you know, they all saw Zali Stegel in, in Warringah. And Kath McGowan before that, of course, yeah, down exactly in Indi. In, in Indi. Um, you know, really interesting example, I think, of um, building up kind of community and, and grassroots support. So I think it, it may be that as well, that it's just the, the, the kind of the role models for doing this successfully um, have actually been women to date. In terms of the work that you guys are doing at the Grattan Institute, how many of these independents, is it looking like we'll probably need to vote in? How many of these independents will have to take a seat off either the Liberals or the Nationals to, I suppose, hold that balance of power in the crossbench? So again, it kind of just depends a lot on how various seats fall, but, you know, you can see that, you know, three um, has certainly been a scenario where, you know, three could could be enough, but it, it does depend on a lot about what happens in the next uh, six or, or so weeks. You know, I think our work certainly shows in periods where there's low trust in government, where so where people are feeling particularly disillusioned, that's the environment that they're more likely to vote for for minor parties and, and independents. And, you know, it's, it's actually quite interesting looking at the data on trust in government. It went uh, spiked really high during the, the early stages of COVID and, and people, you know, really got behind both the federal government and the, the state governments. And then since then, it's, it's been a bit of a steady de- decline. And, you know, I think it looks like heading, kind of heading back to the, you know, pretty low levels that we saw ourselves in a, in a pre-COVID world. So, um, you know, I think that also plays in favour of, of some of the, the independents and, and minor parties because they can pitch that kind of anyone but, but them message. So, you know, that to me um, speaks favourably of their chances, but, you know, a lot, a lot can happen in an election period. So I think mm. we'll um, have to see how it plays. Yeah, I've heard the same. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us to break all of that down and also to the good work at the Grattan Institute for actually providing a vision for a path forward out of, out of the gridlock that we're all feeling. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I really enjoyed the chat. I actually also got this question sent through, which I'll answer quickly here. Hi, Sarah. My name is Dylan. I just want to ask, how do I find a climate-focused, progressive, independent candidate in my electorate? All right. Well, you can go to Vote Compass and I'll put all of these links in the show notes at the bottom. Well, you can go to Vote Compass and I'll put all of these links um, in the show notes and you can type in your postcode or electorate and it will tell you who is running in your electorate, including any independents. And you can actually go on their websites from there and there's a little 
brief description where you can get to know them a little. But I'm betting if you look around your neighbourhood, you'll probably see those big banners about the place. That's probably going to be a good way to do it. They're probably going to be teal in colour. Now, if you want to know more about these teal independents, these ones that are really focused on climate, you can go to the Climate 200 and essentially they're a fundraising organisation that helps support these teal independents. And they're putting their money, they've done the numbers and they're putting their money behind 18 of those 30 that I mentioned earlier that Danielle and I mentioned. They're the ones that they believe have a fairly good chance. And so you might want to go and have a look. And the money, by the way, is to assist them while they campaign against major parties which with much deeper coffers and often coffers funded by the fossil fuel industry. So I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Now, I'm not saying to vote in particular for an independent, but if you like the look of one in your electorate, if they are speaking to the issues that you care about and you're feeling that the major parties are just not speaking to these issues, they've been silent or avoidant on them, well, hopefully this episode can show you that a vote for an independent at the very least could actually put in a very powerful representative of your needs and the needs of people in your neighbourhood. While at the same time, perhaps getting some real change happening at a policy level in this country. You might also see that a vocal and powerful crossbench of MPs without vested interests from, say, these fossil fuel companies or other corporates and who are not held back by party lines could very well provide the shake-up that this country needs. Just to refer back to the question I really pose at the outset of this series, perhaps they could provide a path to the Australia we want going forward. I've been following a good dozen of these teal independents for a while. And look, I'll put their Instagram handles in the show notes as well. And what I've observed is that while some might be more conservative than my leanings, because many of them do come from originally a liberal background, that's a large L or cap L liberal background, they do tend to all speak in fresh, vibrant language. And they are very clearly focused on those five pillars of care, in particular, the single most important issue on any agenda anywhere in the world right now, and that's the climate crisis. And since I've been asked this a lot too, nope, they do not operate like a party and most have never met each other. They've spontaneously emerged from the same frustration and desire to do what's needed to get real change. Also, Since I'm often asked this as well, I don't have an affiliation with any of these independents, nor Climate 200. I've only connected via them all through social media and by chiming in where I think they say good stuff. That said, if you'd like to hear from a few of them on this podcast, please put something in the comments somewhere on my socials and I'll see what I can do. I'll see if there's interest there. Okay, that should wrap things up. It is a really important and hopeful twist in the election plot this year. So I really wanted to spend a bit of time explaining this new movement. You can stay in touch. You can post questions on my Instagram um, or via my Substack newsletter. And please share this, this episode with anyone who does live in an electorate where there's a strong independent running. Let them know what's going on. Okay, until next episode, uh, stay strapped in. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 